Hello, I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to The West Walk. U.S. President Joe Biden wrapped up his visit to Ottawa with a strong pitch for creating even closer ties between Canada and the United States. In his speech to Parliament, Biden described the future as full of possibilities. Nothing is beyond our capacity. We can do anything. We have to never forget. We must never doubt our capacity. Canada and the United States can do big things. We stand together. Do them together. Rise together. We're going to write the future together. I promise you. So what does that future look like in real terms? And what are the Americans looking for from Canada when it comes to big ticket items like clean energy technology, critical minerals, the Arctic and defense? For more on all of this, I'm joined by U.S. Ambassador to Canada, David Cohen. Ambassador, so nice to have you back. It's great to be here. Good morning, everyone. What a what a visit. I mean, you could really feel yeah. the energy in that last clip. Everybody seemed very happy with it. I know these visits, despite what we see, are not a one or two day event. They are months in advance and months after. What do you feel the biggest success of this visit was? So for me, the biggest success is the essential message that Joe Biden was able to deliver in person, live in multiple audiences. And that is the partnership and the relationship between Canada and the United States is longstanding, it's durable, and it's going to continue. It's going to continue and it's going to grow. As the president said in another clip in that speech, the United States will be there for Canada, period. And I think the message of rebuilding the trust that used to exist between Canada and the United States, Canada's part of the United States, I think in one visit, I think the president sort of reinforced it, locked it down, turned the key, move on to the ne- move on to the next point. The supplementary message to that is partnership. It's our ability to accomplish so much when we work together. One of my favorite Joe Biden lines, which is really from the 2021 virtual visit, is when Canada and the United States work together, we're stronger, we're better. And we do better and the world does better. And I think he had a chance to deliver that message as well. Um, And I do think people, I do think when he left, I know our team here on the ground, the White House team felt energized. And I felt, I think Canadians felt energized by this. And there's nothing like having someone who's as authentic and genuine a communicator as Joe Biden actually speaking those words live and in Canada. I think a lot of Canadians feel, obviously, the relationship with the Biden presidency is way more stable than with the Trump presidency, and that there was a warmth to Canada, but maybe a lukewarm. This visit felt to me like the tone was changing. I know there's been frustration from the Americans over things like defense spending, um, and, and that Canada has been saying they're doing more to try to address that. But it almost felt like there was a shift in the relationship back to closer uh, to what we saw, for example, between Justin Trudeau and Barack Obama. Do you think that that's accurate, that the relationship has become closer? So um, I, don't, I don't have enough of a personal window here. I've got 15 months of, of personal window. I know how strongly Joe Biden feels about Canada and about how strongly he feels about his relationship with Prime Minister Trudeau. I know that from the process where um, 
I was considering what job I might want to do in the administration and my conversations with him about how he felt about Canada. So I don't, I don't think there's any change in the way Joe Biden feels about this. Whether there's a change in the perception of Canadians um, as to the closeness of the relationship, um, I, I think there, I think there's been, I think there's clearly been a sense, in part because Joe Biden hasn't been here. So I think there's clearly been a sense of, does Joe Biden really care about Canada? Do those words that he says from the United States? Are they, are they authentic and real? Those words that David Cohen, his ambassador, says, are they really the way that Joe Biden feels? I think if you can do something in one visit um, and a series of speeches and interactions and visuals on TV, I think this visit put that to rest. Joe Biden cares about Canada. Um, the United States cares about Canada. This country is our most important friend, ally, and partner. And having Joe Biden on Canadian soil reiterating that and giving people the opportunity to see the way he interacts, the friendliness of his interactions with Prime Minister Trudeau, whether it's a change in the way the United States feels or just a hammering home of the importance of Canada to the United States, this visit accomplished that message. One of the things that we have seen post-COVID and with the concerns about Russia and China is this concept of friendshoring, that you want your supply chains to be with friendly countries mm -hmm. so that you're able to access them and don't find yourself cut off from energy, cut off from automotive parts, cut off from vital things for the economy. And I noticed there was a lot of discussion about having a secure supply chain and, and how much both the president and prime minister seem to want that to be between Canada and the United States. There are very real challenges with the amount of manufacturing we still rely on from China, realistically in Canada and the U.S. Practically, what does that increased closeness between the supply chains and the economies look like as it plays out going forward? So the, the integration of the supply chains, the resilience of the supply chains, which, by the way, it's more than automobiles. We've now injected critical minerals and critical mineral supply chains into this conversation is amazingly complex. There are a lot of piece parts to it. In some of these places, like critical minerals, China has a big head start, and how do we catch up? So I'm a believer in um, in the one step at a time, in the in the one step at a time approach, which is you can't just wake up the next morning and say our supply chains are integrated, we're now prepared to take on China and to be competitive in in every way with uh, with China in terms of our reliance on. Chinese manufacturing in our in our supply chains. You have to bite these off one at a time. So we have this new task force, this integrated energy task force, which is focused on creating integrated supply chains in the energy space and empowering the energy transition. It's intentionally a one-year task force because we do not want this to be one of those efforts that has an unlimited time horizon to it. We're trying to create the sense of urgency that we think this believes. I noticed there was less public discussion about China this time than in some of the previous meetings. There was lots about Russia and what's happening in Ukraine and the atrocities there. China was less of a mention other than when at one point the president slipped speaking to parliament right. and, and called Canada China and then said, well, I guess I know what, you're, what, I'm, what I'm thinking about. I'm curious to know, what, what was the discussion about China behind the scenes? So, I mean, we, 
I mean, China was a discussion. It is covered in the joint statement. The importance, the and by the way, China is important in a couple of senses in the defense space with the balloons and the imperative that Chinese and Russian investment in the Arctic and in um, potential intelligence gathering, potential offensive capacity in the Arctic and the implications that that has for NORAD funding, sort of reinforcing the need for specific and important commitments for NORAD modernization. So that's part of the joint statement. Um, China also comes up in the commercial set, in the commercial setting where discussions and there is a paragraph in the joint statement about the need to recognize the changed approach of China toward the West and toward North America. Um, and so it was, it was a discussion. It is covered in the joint statement, but I think it was covered in an appropriate way, which is as part of larger stories increasing our competitiveness overall in an international economy, defense, as opposed to picking at China. And I, and by the way, this is the United States and Canada. There was no light between the two countries as to the importance of taking on China, um, competing against them more effectively, calling them out when they uh, adopt non-rules-based trade practices, um, and I have to say, if I can, I, I hate disagreeing with you because I respect you so much. But if I'm that clip you showed was a great clip from the speech. But for me, the emotional punch in the gut of the parliamentary speech was the two Michaels mm -hmm. and the comments that both the prime minister and the president made about that and about the leadership that Canada has played with now 70 countries attacking arbitrary detention, all of that was, was China-directed. Um, so you sort of can't leave the overall impression of the visit without realizing that Canada and the United States together are prepared to take on China when China needs to be taken on to protect ourselves from a defense and a commercial capacity. Ambassador, a very clear message. That's all the time we have for today, but I'm sure we'll be back and talking about many of these issues again. We always love having you on the show. Well, great. I appreciate being on, and good luck with the budget this coming week. <laughs> Thanks. We're going to need it. All right. There has been a lot of news on the Chinese interference and influence file in the past week. On Tuesday, we learned about Special Rapporteur David Johnston's mandate given to him by the Prime Minister and the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff. Katie Telford agreed to testify before a House committee about what the government knew regarding Beijing's election interference. But that wasn't enough for the opposition parties, who voted for an inquiry to be called immediately. A day after MP Han Dong resigned from the Liberal caucus to clear his name, Following revelations, he had an unsanctioned conversation with the Chinese Consul General discussing the two Michaels. I want to assure Mr. Michael Spavert and Mr. Michael Covert and their families that I did nothing to cause them any harm. The allegations made against me are as false as the ones made against you. On Friday, the Prime Minister was asked about Han Dong at a news conference with President Biden. Do you believe he advocated for the delayed release of the two Michaels? First of all, Han uh, gave uh, a strong speech in the House that I recommend uh, people uh, listen to, and uh, we fully 
uh, accept that he is stepping away from the Liberal caucus uh, in order to uh, vigorously contest these allegations. Well, talking about China's efforts to influence and interfere in our democracy might seem new to some. For many in the Chinese-Canadian community, this has been a reality that they have warned about for years. Joining me now to talk about this is Chuck Kwan, co-chair of the Toronto Association for Democracy in China, and Joanna Chu from the Toronto Star. She is also the author of the book, China Unbound. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, Chuck, I'd like to start with you. What is your reaction to the Handong story? What do you make of it all? Well, I, we was kind of puzzled why he would do what he did, uh, if that is indeed what he did. And uh, if proven, then I would say, uh, I would speculate that he might have just wanted to be cultivated friendship with the Chinese council and maybe telling the, the other side uh, what they want to hear. And do you think that there's some context around there that people should be thinking about, Joanna, when they're, when they're hearing these stories? It obviously shocked a lot of people. Han Dong very clearly denies that this happened. There was a conversation. We know that. The Prime Minister's office has confirmed there was a conversation, but it's sort of the questions about what was in it. And part of that has evolved into a discussion about whether there's enough nuance in reporting about Chinese interference in Canada. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have a piece coming out actually trying to figure out the legal definitions of some of these words that we're talking about, like foreign influence and agent, and if you're a proxy for a foreign state. And part of the issues in Canada are definitions either don't exist because we don't have a concrete set of laws on foreign influence, or they're different, or they're even a bit contradictory. So the RCMP and CSIS has different definitions of what is foreign influence. Uh, I think Han Dong's case, he is in the hot seat right now, but we should remember that previous reports, these leaks from you know spy documents say that at least 11 federal candidates uh, were possibly um, supported uh, with undeclared cash donations by the Chinese consulate, and Han Dong reportedly was one of them. But he, Previously, he said that he had no idea that he had any sort of support from the Chinese consulate, that CSIS did not brief him, that he was not informed. Um, so I think this case really highlights the difficulties and the nuance of what foreign influence is, uh, how foreign states act in Canada. It could be true that you could be a target but not know it. Um, if someone is a good uh, threat actor, they could manipulate you so that you change your behaviors, thinking it's out of your own volition and that you are not, in fact, uh, voluntarily acting as a proxy for, the foreign, for a foreign state. So this is all really complicated, and I think it's an opportunity for public education and potentially looking at gaps in our laws um, rather than always pointing fingers or being quick to judgment on certain people. Um, I think Chuck and I have seen, like on Twitter, some people are unearthing images of events where Chinese consulate members have met with certain members of Chinese Canadian community and saying, oh, this must be, there must be something shady going on. They must be an agent. Um, but that just proves they're in the same room. So um, hopefully we have kind of more kind of nuance and context around these conversations. Uh, Chuck, you mentioned that you think that part of this might have been if, if uh, Han Dog said what he's alleged to have said by these CSIS sources, that it may have been him just saying it's what the Chinese consulate wanted to hear. Can you describe for us what a relationship like that would typically look like? Would that kind of a conversation be abnormal? Uh, is that a kind of a conversation that you would think is problematic to be having? People from uh, 
Chinese people or people from China take a, a put a lot of emphasis on guanxi, which is a relationship. So to to attend a council generals uh, uh, Chinese council generals uh, consulate's uh, national day uh, party or Chinese New Year party, it's not certainly not a uh, not a wrongdoing and certainly welcome. But there's also a lot of cultural cues that maybe some of us uh, are not privy to. And these could be some of these uh, cultural boundaries that, you know, they're a gray area. So I'm not saying that uh, Han Dong did uh, anything wrong. I'm just saying that we have to be careful how how we read these signals. And certainly, um, as I pointed out uh, before, we're just dealing with 10% of the iceberg. We're dealing with the tip of the iceberg about federal electoral interference. There are a lot of things that has been going on below the water level uh, for many, many years by China in terms of influencing, interfering, and meddling in uh, Canadian uh, affairs. From the election of school board trustees to municipal mayors and councillors to the provincial government and, of course, the federal government. So this is something that I, I think we, sh we should be aware that we're not, we're not barking up the wrong tree. We should be looking at what's underneath that uh, iceberg and, and really get a feel and understanding of perhaps the danger of such uh, China's uh, meddling in our affairs. Joanna, what does the spectrum look like of, of influence and interference from sort of trying to entice people and be friendly, whether it's taking them on trips or going to events, trying to influence their thinking, mm -hmm. right up to what some members of the Chinese-Canadian community have described in the Uyghur community of direct threats against their family? Yeah, so I think it's important to understand just recent years in Canada before the two Michaels were taken, before the Meng Wanzhou crisis. Um, the overarching philosophy in Ottawa across Canada was that it was good to pursue trade and business with China as much as possible. And there was a justification I found in my research across the Western world that with just mere contact with liberal democracies through things like business and trade, uh, China's political system would somehow naturally evolve to become more democratic, that its human rights conditions would improve. Um, so some say it was kind of a justification. That was definitely, some say, the case in Canada. Um, I was in Beijing when Trudeau took his senior cabinet members over to China to try to uh, get a free trade deal with China. Um, that was just in 2017. So it's very recent that the main goal of Ottawa was to have friendlier ties with China. And um, behind the scenes, a lot of people like Chuck Quan were warning that uh, part of it may have been the influence of decades of influence on Canada's political system, that this was a good idea, that it was good to try to not uh, speak too much about China's human rights situation, to try to be more positive instead. This was a line that Beijing definitely wanted people to believe. And a lot of this uh, took place with positive uh, inducements. So I talk about carrots and sticks approaches. We learn 
learn more about the sticks nowadays because more Uyghur, Tibetan, um, Hong Kong, Chinese Canadians are talking about how their family friends are threatened um, if they don't comply, if they don't try to cooperate uh, with China. But the carrot approach, I think, is still a larger slice of the pie of what China tries to do. So, you know, inviting uh, even like pretty low level politicians, city councillors of smaller towns in Canada to these very lavish VIP, all expense paid trips in China. And if you look up records, um, you know, politicians have been open that they have been excited about going on these trips. And they're really, when they're in China or even when they're, you know, having uh, some of these paid receptions uh, sponsored by a Chinese consulate here in Canada, they're really uh, treated with a lot of respect. Uh, it's kind of a playbook where, oh, you're a friend of China, you understand China, um, let's get some business done. And this has been going on for a long time, uh, including during uh, the Hmong crisis, some um, BC and other uh politicians were criticized for planning and trying to continue these activities with China. Very interesting topic and one that I hope we can talk to both of you about again soon. We're out of time for today, but thank you so much for taking the time to share your interest and, and insight with us on this topic. It's time for one last thing. The federal budget comes down on Tuesday, the biggest political event of the year in Ottawa. This year, the government is post-COVID spending, but must now deal with economic uncertainties in the Canadian, American and global economies. They also have to strike a balance between promised fiscal restraint and the rising cost of living paired with politically popular affordability programs for Canadians. Defence, clean energy technology and their deal with the NDP are all also must-haves on the agenda. We'll have special coverage in our live budget special on Global News. That's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back here next Sunday. I'm Mercedes Stevenson for the West Block. What's your emergency? Ah, I'm on a cruise ship. Ah, there was an explosion. Oh, my God, the ship is sinking. I can't get out. There's water everywhere. We're going down. I've got a lock on your location. Stay with me. Hurry, hurry. Hello? Are you there? Help is on the way. Angela Bassett and Peter Krause return in an all-new season of 911 on a new night. Thursday, March 14th on Global. Stream on Stack TV.